Amen. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Open your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, this morning, we're going to go ahead and uh, start this letter. Uh, last time we were together, we did an overview of the letter. We did uh, a look at what are the reasons for which we should study this book. Um, to give them to you very quickly, we discussed the following. We said we should study Colossians because we believe in the same Jesus as the Colossians, the same superior Jesus as the Colossians. Uh, we should study this book because we battle the same threats uh, as the Colossians did. Thirdly, we boast in the same powerful grace as the Colossians. And lastly, we believe in the same sufficient gospel. And so that's why we are turning to this letter. It has a lot to say to us in the present, even as it was written for an ancient people in the past. This morning, we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 8. Let me read God's word as we get ready to hear from him. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ Jesus at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Pray with me, Father, as we turn to your word. Would you help us to give our ear to it, our heart to it. May our eyes behold Christ as he is. Recognizing that even the things that we see this morning are placed here, written here by the Apostle Paul. To make much of Christ. To exalt him to remind us of our need for him, to praise you that we've received him, that he's revealed himself to us, to worship you because Jesus is worthy of all worship, to regard Christ highly because only he is worthy of being regarded as such. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for this gospel. I pray that this time would be edifying to our hearts as we seek to walk in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if we've talked about this yet, but have I told you that my favorite Disney movie is The Lion King? Have we ever gotten there? No, not yet. We have? I've told you about this. It's number one in my heart. What did I tell you about it? You don't even remember. You're just like lost. You're just like, I don't even know what that movie is. I know, it's an old movie. It's as old as I am. And it's the best Disney movie that's ever existed. Um, one, there's lions, um, two, there's other animals, and three, 
there's lions. So, greatest Disney movie of all time. And a really fascinating story, right? Um, there's a new movie coming out called Mufasa soon. Um, I'm looking forward to that because that's probably one of my favorite underrated Disney characters. But the one I focus on right now is, is Simba, right? And we all understand the story of Lion King. You've seen it. Can we raise our hands? I don't want to feel like I'm hopeless here talking to people who just don't know good culture and good... Okay, yeah. So Simba, right? He's got some issues. And he ends up far from home. Some of that has to do with a crazy uncle and a pack of hyenas. But Simba ends up so far from home that eventually it seems like there's no way that he'll come back. And everyone wants him to come back. In fact, it's necessary that he comes back. But in order to do so, there's an intervention. He'd already lost his dad, and I don't think he ever anticipated what was coming next, which was a baboon with a stick. But that baboon and that stick prompted him to go over to a body of water by which he saw his reflection and then, in a way that Disney can, sees his dad again, right? And his dad has a very particular message for him. Do you remember what it is? There it is. You did it with a deep voice and everything. Good job. Remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. Um, I thought that was good. <laughs> that was the message, right? And the message could have been a bunch of different things, right? And this this kid, this son of a king who had lost himself and kind of didn't even know who he was anymore, wasn't doing what he should be doing anymore, the message he needed to receive and that he received so mightily from his dad was remember who you are. And I think that's such a powerful display of how life often works. The message could have been go back home and take care of your uncle. The message could have been um, why don't you uh, do better? Why don't you be the king that you're supposed to be? Why don't you act better? Why don't you act right? Why don't you go back home and save the family? But that wasn't the message. The message was, remember who you are. There was something about, in that moment, this character understanding his identity in order to be able to do what he needed to do. And I think that message resonates with us. I think that message in some way resonates even with the way that Paul writes this letter. Before Paul gets into any conversation about what this church needs to do, Paul recognizes and wants this church to recognize exactly who they are. And this first section of Colossians, this first eight verses, it's a prayer of thanksgiving. And the prayer that Paul is making is not a boast about uh, these people. It's not a boast about what they do. It's not in recognition of how awesome they are, although those things are true and those things are kind of there. At the center of this prayer, at the center of this thanksgiving is a gratitude for God because of who he's made this church to be. And he wants this church to remember who it is, where it came from, how it got to be what it is. That's Paul's desire in these first few verses. This is a prayer of thanksgiving in remembrance 
of what this church is because of Christ. There is no mistaking identity for people in the body of Christ. The beauty of our relationship with Jesus, the beauty of our walk with him is we don't have to venture looking for who is it that we are and how we should live. In Christ, we have been given everything we need toward life and godliness. And thereby, in order to live rightly before God, we first need to always remember who we are in him. That's Paul's mission for us this morning. And I want to unpack that for us by means of just looking at this letter as it is. You know, who's writing it? Who's he writing to? Um, where's he going? Uh, what's he writing about? And I have two points with a few subpoints, and And I think that'll help us get through this letter in a way that hopefully relays the same message to you. The same note that Paul was writing to the church in Colossae is the same message that is offered to you today. It's praise God for his goodness. It's praise God for the gospel. It's praise God because he saves. And it's praise God because you are who you are because God is who he is. All those who walk the Christian life have nothing to boast of in and of themselves. Their entirety of our boast is in him. That's how it says it in Ephesians chapter 2. We have no room to boast, but our boast is in him. And so praise God for the gospel and praise God that we are what we are because Christ is who he is. Let's look at it in two main ways. Number one, let's start with the author. Let's start with the author who makes himself known very clearly here in verse 1. Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And I know that that seems really insignificant to most of you. You're like, all right, let's move on. What's next? But I do like to think about this for a second. One, we recognize Paul is writing this letter. I've mentioned to you before, probably somewhere around the year 60, 62 AD. Um, You're doing math. It's a long time ago. He writes this from a prison cell. Paul is in the midst of being imprisoned for the gospel. He's in Rome because he's been preaching the good news of Jesus to the nations. And Paul kind of highlights this for us and maybe in a way that we wouldn't expect, but we see that from the outset. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That term apostle, it means someone who's been sent. He's a messenger. He's someone who has been a witness of God and his gospel and it sets Paul apart from the rest of us. Paul's mission was very different to what our mission is. Paul had a particular mission for Christ that we do not have. Paul was stopped on his way to destroy Christianity by Jesus himself. And there his eyes were open to see the glory of Christ and then to be changed and transformed to be someone who would take the gospel to the nations. In that, Paul could do some really amazing things, like hear from God and write his word. And I think that's what the point is for us as we think about this author. Paul is an apostle. He is someone who heralds a message, and a message that doesn't belong to him. It's not his opinion. It's not like when I say I don't like pineapple on pizza. It's my opinion. 
It's not all of yours opinions. What Paul is declaring, Paul's message, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, which means he's been given authority by the one who has all authority. And so the message that Paul is bringing forth, it's a message that comes with very particular, very strict, very divine orders. Paul isn't making this up. And Paul isn't boasting in his mission. He's a humble man, and we know this because he tells us he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so he writes this letter under the authority of Jesus, and he's not doing so to show off. He does so by the will of God. Paul had only been called to this mission because that was God's choice. That was God's design. That was God's intent. Was to use this man of God to write to this church to deliver a message from God himself. Why does that matter? I'll tell you this. A lot of people actually try to say Paul didn't write this letter. In studying for this sermon, a lot of the time was spent just muddling through people arguing that Paul would not have written this letter. And I'm not going to make a huge deal of that today, but I would say this. The fact that Paul writes this letter, the fact that he even lets us know from the beginning is of such importance because of the realities we know to be true. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, from God. It comes from the very heart of God. This is scripture. So if Paul wrote this letter, we know it to be of God and we know it to be true. We don't have to question who wrote it. If you can question who wrote this letter, here's the problem. You can question everything in this book. If Paul didn't write this letter, you have reason to ask, did Jesus really die for sins? If Paul didn't write this letter, you have reasons to ask, does Jesus really rise again from the dead and give us eternal life? It seems like such a simple thing. But the precious truth is that Paul wrote this letter He made it known to us, and he made it known to us because he's being moved by God to deliver this message. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. The nice thing for Paul is that even though he's in chains and in prison, he has an accomplice, he has a friend, and it's Timothy. A young man, a man who's very known to be a bit timid, a bit shy, kind of lacks a little bit in his leadership skills, but the one thing he is, is he's loyal. He's a dear friend. And even as Paul is sent to Rome to be in prison, Timothy is by his side. And Paul is not saying that Timothy's writing this letter. I think Paul is simply saying, I have someone on our team with me. I'm encouraged. I have a brother. That's how he regards Timothy. And so Paul writes this letter under the authority of Christ, by the will of God, with a friend at hand. And that is meant to encourage us that the words that we are about to hear are not merely words that come from Paul, but they're words that come from God. That's the author. Look with me now at the audience. Who is he writing to? Well, you'll read in verse 2. He's writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And so here we have a very specific people in view, right? 
This letter is going to the church in the city of Colossae. Now, by the time that Paul writes this letter to them, the church in Colossae had become somewhat insignificant. Or at least not the church, but the city had become insignificant. The way I like to think about what happened to uh, the, the city of Colossae is, do you remember Radiator Springs? They got all the Disney things flowing today. So like, you know, they stumble upon Radiator Springs. There's like four people there. They're kind of hillbillies and no one ever goes there. And then there's that really sad song that gets us all to cry, but it tells a story about how Radiator Springs lost its lure and its appeal to people. And it's really simple. They built a freeway. That's what happened to Radiator Springs. Instead of people cutting through that town to get where they needed to go, they built a freeway that led people in a different direction. And so no one went to Radiator Springs again. Colossae kind of suffered from something very similar. It was in a particular region where there was these trade routes, and at one point in time, it was very prominent for being on that route. And then they changed course. And now the cities around it became more prominent. And yet this comes then as an encouragement to this church. No matter how insignificant it might seem to the world, it's of utmost significance to God and to his messenger, Paul. Anyone who has a sincere faith in the Lord Jesus is worthy of hearing his message and growing up in it. That's what Paul is encouraging them with here. Paul had never met this church before. He says so much in chapter 2. For I want you to know, verse 1, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who I have not seen face, who have not seen me face to face. Paul never met this church before. And yet they're significant to him because they belong to God. That's how the church works. This church in a place that's seemingly becoming more insignificant to the world is of utmost significance to Paul. And here's the reality why, right? It has nothing to do with Colossae. It has nothing to do with that fact that they're at Colossae. It has everything to do with the fact that they're in Christ. And this is where we realize this letter has so much to offer us. Does it matter where you're at? matter who you're in, you're in Jesus. If that's who you belong to, if that's who you've given your life to, if that's who has loved you and given his life for you and you've seen it and believed upon it and lived for it and love Christ, then this letter is for you. And so the audience in many ways, it's the saints and faithful brothers, these Christians living in Colossae, but it's also us. It's all of those who by faith have been united to God. We've seen the author, we've seen the audience. Let's look toward his appreciation. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. In other words, I recognize you received the good news of the gospel, and now let's walk in it. Here, his gratitude is made known in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
I mean, this had to be awesome news for this church in Colossae. Paul giving thanks for their faith, their love, their hope in the gospel. Coming from an apostle that they knew was a mighty man of God, but they'd never met. This had to come as such a seal of approval of what God was doing in their life. It's kind of like when I was dating my wife and I wanted to marry her. Like I, I you know, in, in that process, you're looking for approval from her family. But I'll tell you what. My wife has a lot of family. I didn't need approval from everyone. The main thing is I needed approval from her dad. And once I got that, I knew I was good. And Danny's dad is quiet, reserved, different, not a man of many words. But I knew I got his approval the one time. I went to visit Danny, her family, at their home. And Danny's dad loves to grill, so I was like, let's do it. Let's do that together. This is going to be it. This is how I'm going to win. So we're grilling, like, for an entire day. And then I'm sitting outside, sitting by the pool, just sitting there, just enjoying all my labor. I made ribs and burgers, and I was growing by the minute. And out of nowhere, behind me walks Danny's dad. He hugs me. And kisses me on the head. And in that moment, I shivered (laughs) and was like, what is happening? And I also knew I did it. (laughs) I got his approval. This is it. This is a sign that I've won him over. He respects me. He appreciates me. And from then on out, he's actually said it with his words. Praise God. But I understood in that moment I had done what was necessary to gain his attention and to receive his approval. The person that mattered most. The person that I esteemed the most in that process. Something similar is happening here in this setting with the Colossians and Paul. It's one thing to be encouraged by everyone else in your faith uh, about what's going on in you. It's another to get a letter written to you by the apostle of Christ to the Gentiles, to the world, to the nations with the gospel, telling you, I see your faith and I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for what God is doing in you. It had to be such a note of encouragement. And in some way, it's such a powerful reminder to us of how we should be with one another. Testifying not only of our own faith, but encouraging one another as we see faith around us. As we see God at work in others. Paul is grateful. He he gives approval of what he's seeing in this church. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. I'd never seen them before, never met them before, but this church is in his constant prayers. Why? Well, because he'd heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. Three things in particular that Paul expresses gratitude for. Number one is their faith in Christ Jesus. Faith, very simply for us, is belief. And all of us understand that belief isn't simply this intellectual like, oh yeah, I think that's true. Faith is when you believe something and it does something to you. 
Faith is when you believe upon something, and so now your life looks so much different because you believe that. If you believe speeding on the freeway is a bad idea, you're going to drive slower. If you believe that a restaurant is worthy of you eating at that place, you would go and eat their food. If you believe, you do. And Paul has seen that in this church. And the thing that's so important about this faith is not simply that it exists, but it's what it's rooted in. We have heard of your faith, your love and obedience in Christ Jesus. Listen, around you, there are so many things that you can give your life to. You can believe in every which way, in all kinds of stuff, all sorts of stuff. In fact, in our world now, the noble thing to do is to say that there's nothing to believe in. There is no truth. There is no hope. There is no reality. Everything is abstract. Everything is relative. And that's not the Christian life. You have an anchor in Christ when you have faith. And the beauty of faith is not in and of itself the faith, it's the object of that faith. The beauty of faith is that there is Christ. The beauty of faith is that it's tethered to, rooted in, built up on Jesus. Paul sees that in this church, and he's grateful for it. And one of the ways in which he sees it is secondly here, not only do they have faith, but they also have love. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Christianity is a twofold process. There's the greatest commandment and then there's a commandment like it. Number one, love the Lord your God. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. And really when we think about it, those commandments can be seen as one A and one B. It's not one and two. It's not love God and then if you find time and if you feel like it and when you're ready for it, you should go love other people. That's not how Jesus expresses the commandment. The expression is actually this, love God and you will love people. Put God first and you'll begin to put others before yourself. Consider God most highly and you'll consider yourself less and others more. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as your self. A life that lives in opposition to that cannot claim to know Christ. We see that to be true in the letter of First John. Here in the letter to uh, the letter that John writes, uh, John makes this known in First John chapter two, verse nine. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If loving your church and loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, and and sacrificing for God's people, and making time for God's people, 
and fellowshipping with God's people and being discipled by God's people, mentored by God's people, building others up amongst the people of God. If that's a burden for you, you might not understand the love that God has for you and his people. The Christian life is not one in which we do things to earn God's favor. And so you loving the church isn't something that will merit you anything with God. It's simply the outflow of what God's already doing in you. And if you say that you are in him, you will prove it by loving his people. That is simply the evidence of the faith that you claim to have. Someone who claims that faith and doesn't love his brother has a faulty faith. That's the message. And praise be to God, amongst this church, Paul sees an authenticity of faith. He sees a people that claim Christ and then love like Christ. They have a love for all the saints. And let's be clear, that love, that has nothing to do with your emotional state with other people. It's not that when you see someone else in 180, you go like, oh my gosh, like, hi. That's oftentimes fake and more often than not creepy. That's not it. That's not love. The the love that is being described here that Paul is talking about that these people have for the saints of God, it's a genuine love. It's a caring love. It's a what do you need? How can I help? How can I serve? How can I be of blessing in your life? It's not that I'm buddy-buddy with everyone, but anyone I come in contact with, anyone who I know loves Christ, I will be there for them when they need me. It's not a love that's, that Paul is talking about. It's not an extensive love. It's not about how far and wide, how many people you know, how many friends are, are on your Facebook or Instagram profile. It's about the people in front of you. Do you give yourself to them? The people around you, do you truly care about them? It's a genuine love, and it's a love this church had. Thirdly, this church had hope. And it's kind of Paul's own weird triune thing that he has going on. It's, it's the virtues that are most common in the Christian life. It's faith, hope, and love. This church has faith faith rooted in Christ. It has love, love that exists for all the saints. And in this version of it, that faith and that love is connected to, is founded upon, verse 5, the hope laid up for them in heaven. Their faith and their love is based in their hope of heaven. That's what verse 5 says. I wonder if your life mimics the same thing. I wonder if your faith in Christ, your love for his people, is rooted in a hope of glory to come. Future glory is the reason that we can presently be faithful. The reality that one day we will be brought safely home into heaven is the very reason that you should give Christ your all today. That's the truth for this church. They didn't see heaven as some far off thing that one day we'll get to. And so, you know what, right now, I'll just do whatever I want. Or you know what, right now, sure, I believe in Jesus, but 
let me just go do a couple things, and one day when we get there, I'm sure everything will be great. No, the reality that heaven is coming, reality that there's a hope laid up for this church and all of God's people in heaven, that moves this church to be what Christ has called it to be. They have a hope laid up in heaven, and they will not waste that reality. They will not waste that truth. They recognize it's similar to what 1 Peter says in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Here, Peter uses some of the similar language. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is that living hope? Well, in verse 4, it's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Whenever you book a vacation, you make a reservation, right? You don't just show up to a hotel. I mean, you could, but if you want to stay at a good one, you probably want to do it in advance. That's what reservations are for. You reserve yourself a place. The gospel is the opposite. You couldn't reserve yourself a place, but God did that for you in Christ Jesus. If you want to get to heaven, you need to recognize God has prepared a place for you. Out of his own love, his own mercy, his own grace, he has prepared a place for you. And when you get to heaven, no one else got your reservation. Your reservation wasn't canceled. No one did anything to it. It's not lost in the system. It's there for you. Guaranteed. It's kept in heaven for you. All because of who God is. And if that is true of you, then what should be true of you Now, if heaven is your future home, live today like that's true. If heaven is where you're going, live in the present as though heaven already resides in you. Heaven is about Jesus. Jesus lives, he reigns, and he is superior over all things. And so I hope that faith, love, and hope move you to live now for him. This church has much faith, there's great love, and that because of the hope they have for what's to come. This is what Paul is grateful for about this church. But I want us to see Paul's gratitude is not necessarily in this church, it's in the one at work in this church. Do you see that? They have great faith, but that faith is in Christ. They have great love for God's people, but that all because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. There's something that prompts this church to be what it is. And we see it all in the beauty of the gospel. We turn now to our second point. Let's look here at the message. The message that was brought to this church. Why is it that Paul is so grateful for what God is doing in them? They have great faith. They have great love. They have great hope. And of this they have heard, end of verse 5, before in the word of the truth, the gospel. 
which came to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. What is it that gives this church such great faith, love, and hope? Well, it's a very particular message. And that message is the truth that comes from heaven. So Paul says here in verse 5, they have heard of God's truth. And God's truth is equated with the gospel. What is the word of truth? It is the gospel. And I have something. Theologian wrote the gospel out in a way that I feel like I should share with you. The gospel gets confused so oftentimes to be things that it absolutely is not. But look at how this guy put it. Christ, who is the promised Messiah, came to save the lost. The Son of God incarnated in the flesh, who came, taught, did miracles, died on the cross for our sins, rose again, and now sits at the right hand of God as the intercession between believers and a holy God. For we all were sinners and all fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Our works are like rags in His sight. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and took on our sins upon himself. And for those who believe in him, both in heart and in word and in deed, they will be saved. Jesus places his righteousness upon us and frees us from our sins and eternal damnation. Now in him, the Christian life It grows in sanctification and it lives out the fruits of the Spirit. Running the race of life, looking to Jesus, throwing off every hindrance and sin, becoming more like Him. And then at death, they spend eternity in His presence, continually glorifying Him who is worthy of all praise. That's the gospel. And that actually was just written by someone in this room. I had a membership interview earlier and was looking over the application and I said, that's exactly what this is. That's exactly the message that we believe. It's not rocket science. It's the beauty of what God has revealed in his word. Did you notice that in this guy's testimony of what the gospel is, he didn't come up with much on his own? It is verse after verse after verse. He has Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Romans 6.18, John 3.16, Galatians 5.22-23, Hebrews 12.1-3, Revelation 5.12-13. This is the word of the truth, the gospel. It is that God has made himself known. And we know it because Jesus came to earth gave his life for sinners. All of us, while we deserved eternal damnation, have received freely the gift of God's grace. That's the gospel. It's a gospel of grace. And it's a gospel only made known because God has made it known. It's a gospel that's true because God is true. That's the message that this church heard. And that's the message that it's chosen to live by. The word of the truth, the gospel. I wonder if you've believed it. I wonder if you've given your life, not just to 
a God, but to the God, the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, the God of truth. So many people get upset with God because of truth. Aren't you happy that God is honest with you? It would be cruel of God if he just tempted us all our days and toyed with us and taunted us with ways that we could be saved and yet never did it. God is honest with all of us. God is truthful with all of us. And so beyond getting offended with him because he calls you out for being a sinner, you should be thankful. Be grateful that God knows your heart. And what's more, not only does he know you're a sinner, he knows you need a savior. And he's provided that savior in Jesus. How could you be mad at a God like that? This is the gospel. It's what they believed. It's what I pray that you have believed. That is the message. Look at its movement. The message is the word of the truth, the gospel. Notice these people, this church didn't take itself to the gospel. They didn't run toward it. They didn't seek it out. Notice who went, who did what? This is the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. The message came to the people. And that's the beauty of grace. While we weren't seeking a way to be saved, God made a way possible and he brought it to us. That's how it came to this church and that's how it's come to you. It has come to this church. It's come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. This message reaches far and wide looking to save sinners. This was the mission of Jesus, Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And I don't know about you, but what I understand is that the lost are at every corner of the earth. And so the gospel is going forth, finding no place that it doesn't find a home to say, here is the good news. It's at work in Colossae. It's moving through the whole world, bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This is the movement of the gospel. It finds no person for which its offer is not worthy of being considered. The gospel goes to every heart, calling sinners to repent of their sins, believe upon Christ, look to his righteousness, be saved by his grace, and know that in heaven, There is a home for them. The gospel is at work. The gospel is on the move. But I want you to recognize, lastly here, it does so by very particular means. God hasn't just done some spooky kind of thing where his word just goes forth and like we don't know how it gets around. We all know how God's word goes forth. Look at how personal it becomes for this church here, how Paul writes about it. How did they learn? Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is by the means by which the message is moved. People. It's People. It's transformed hearts and lives. 
It's by means of people who have seen God's grace, tasted of God's grace, and then want to tell others about God's grace. This church in Colossae, they had someone who cared about them enough to tell them the truth of the gospel. It's this man named here, Epaphras. This guy goes back to Rome to give a report of what's going on at the church. And Paul sends him back with these words, reminding this church of how important he was because he was the one that brought them the truth of God in the form of the gospel of Christ. People, you, are you being used of God to take his gospel forth to people who don't know him? That's what Christians do. That's what God does in the hearts of believers. That's what God does in the lives of believers. Epaphras, he would tell you himself, he's no special person. And Paul even equates him with himself. This is just a fellow servant. Anyone who's believed upon Jesus is a fellow servant. That's all of us. Would we be like him? Would it be that in the end of our days, they could say just like Epaphras, that we were faithful ministers of Christ? It's not that you need to plant a church. It's not that you need to start a movement. But it's that you do care for the world. It's that you're not selfish. Jesus didn't just die for you. He died for a people. And you might go, well, aren't they chosen? Like, how do I know who they even are? That's not your problem. That's not for you to worry about. Let God take care of that. God has given you a message. God has given you a hope. God has given you faith and love. And would you be selfish with it? Any true Christian would have a desire to be a part of the means that moves around the message of God's gospel. If you believe in Christ, you will not only make much of him by living for him personally, you will make much of him by proclaiming him publicly. You will want others to know Jesus like you know Jesus. The question for you this morning is, do you know him and do you make much of him? Paul's gratitude in this letter, in these first eight verses in particular, his praise for this church, it's not wrapped up in them. It's wrapped up in who God is and what God has made them. God has made them alive together with Christ. By grace, they have been saved. They have been brought forth by the word of truth. They are now a first fruit of God's creatures, God's new creation. And in that, this church exhibits faith, love, and hope. And in that, this church too should be, like Epaphras, proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the world. That's not just true of Colossae. That's true of all of those who are in Christ. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for your truth. And thank you that it saves, sanctifies, and also moves us to go with this gospel to those who have not heard it and need its truth. Lord, you have said so yourself. How then will they call on him who they've not heard? How will they believe in him who they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? 
Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so, God, if we have received that word, would we go boldly with it, knowing that life is at stake, eternal life, for those who have not believed. For those who have, I pray that you would increase their faith, their dependency and trust in you, that you would increase their love, their affection for God and for his people and for their neighbor, that you would increase their hope, knowing that everything we have in Christ is secure because Christ now reigns from heaven and one day will come back for his people to bring them home. Pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.